The LexisNexis Emerging Issues Law Community Podcast. Presentations and interviews with leading attorneys and industry professionals. On this edition, James Kunick of Much Shellist in Chicago on cloud computing. The opinions expressed by guests interviewed on LexisNexis Legal Podcasts do not necessarily reflect those of Reed Elsevier Incorporated, LexisNexis, subsidiary companies, shareholders, employees, or customers, and should not be considered legal advice. James M. Kunick is chair of the Intellectual Property and Technology Group at the Chicago-based law firm Much Shellist. He has nearly two decades of experience representing regional and multinational clients in a broad range of intellectual property, information technology, and corporate transactions. Mr. Kunick, nice to have you here. Thanks for your time. Pleased to be here. I want to talk about cloud computing, and it's something that many people are talking about. And uh, you being an expert in this area, before we delve too much deeper into it, uh, there are different types of clouds, right? Would you explain the main differences between the various uh, cloud deployment uh, and, and delivery models? Sure. I mean, the, the three types of clouds that people hear most about are what are called public clouds, private clouds, and hybrid clouds. Public clouds are really the one that, that you people mostly deal with. I mean, those are the Amazon Web Services, IBM Rackspace, all, all the big-name clouds. That basically means that there is a, a set of servers or a set of software running at some third-party location and accessible by large numbers of people. Um, and that's the public cloud. A private cloud is really nothing more than cloud computing or, or a computing model within and behind an organization's firewall. I mean, it really is almost no different than an, you know, a company having an existing IT department. Um, it's just that there is one department, and that department serves all of the different companies, all the different organizations within a large organization. And then a hybrid cloud is really a model where a company decides to put certain of its resources and data in a public cloud and maintain some of its resources and data within the firewall in the private cloud. Well, how about uh, cloud computing services then? What are the primary models of such services and what do they offer? There, there are three main models. Um, the first one's called infrastructure as a service. The second one is platform as a service. And the third one is software as a service. And, and most people hear about software as a service because there, you're basically, it's, it's almost the same thing as a hosted model where you're paying by the drink, if you will, paying by the transaction to be able to access some kind of a, a software application over somebody else's network. Um, that software as a service, SAS, sometimes it's referred to. And um, the other two, infrastructure as a service and platform as a service, infrastructure as a, as a service is really where you are paying to have either processing or storage or some kind of a very basic fundamental computing service on somebody else's network. So there, a classic example of that is Amazon Web Service, where somebody has a particular program or a particular server on which somebody else's data is stored. Rackspace Cloud is another very well-known one where you're, you are basically buying a virtual server, a virtual set of, of data storage units on somebody else's network. You don't really know where it is, but you know that you can put your data there. Platform as a service is one that's probably more well-known um, by Force.com, which is part of the Salesforce.com organization, um, allowing people and organizations to have to, and, and manage large forces of, of salespeople out in the industry. It basically is a model where there is a computing platform that a customer can actually upload an application, and that application can be accessed by other parties. 
A lot of companies and organizations have already implemented uh, cloud computing, but but for those maybe who have not and are thinking about it, what are some of the benefits for companies that implement cloud computing? The single biggest benefit of cloud computing is is really a term that's come up, which is called business agility. And and business agility is defined uh, generally as the ability of a business to be able to adapt rapidly um, and cost efficiently to changes in the business environment. One of the problems with organizations having large IT organizations is it requires them to not to not only buy the hardware and the software on which they process the company's data, but it also requires them to have large staffs of people to maintain and support those IT organizations. With cloud computing, and especially if you have a seasonal business, you can buy only the amount of computing resources that you need at any particular time so you can scale up or scale down depending upon the needs of your customers and it really allows you to uh, really allows you to more better manage your the amount of money you're spending on computer processing and on data storage based on the amount of money that you've got coming in from your customers so that I think is the single biggest benefit and and what that translates to is the ability of all companies to almost be on a level playing field. So if you're a a startup company, you can now be able to purchase the kind of processing horsepower you've only been able to purchase if you invested millions or tens of millions in an IT infrastructure. If you're a big company, you no longer have to spend all this money maintaining all of these resources. You can buy lots of resources when you're busy, maybe around Christmas time, and you can buy a lot less resources after the holidays. Is this beneficial to all kinds of companies, or are there certain types of companies that better benefit from from a cloud, and why? It, it really benefits a lot of a lot of startups. Again, uh, people that are trying to get into the game. It benefits companies that have seasonal businesses. It, it really benefits most companies. The companies that it doesn't benefit, I think, are those companies that perhaps have have extremely sensitive data, and and I, and I think that's even changing. I mean, so if you're a if you're a healthcare provider or a healthcare claim processor in the past, you didn't tend to move a lot of your personal health information about patients into the cloud. That's changing as the security is improving of the cloud. But for the most part, there really aren't too many companies that can't find some benefit from moving at least some of their resources to the cloud. On the other side of the coin, I imagine there are some legal and and privacy-related risks for uh, uh, opting for this model. Yeah, I mean, there's a number of important risks that you have to take into account. Um, The the single biggest one is just a loss of control um, over your processing and over your data. You know, whereas when you had your own IT organization, you, you knew where your servers were, you knew what applications you were running, you knew that you were only storing your data on your servers. When you move your processing in and data into the cloud, I mean, it sort of disappears. I mean, you know that you've signed a contract with a cloud provider, but you don't know what other contracts that cloud provider may have entered into to actually be able to facilitate all of the services they're providing. They may have a subcontractor that controls the storage of the data. They may have a subcontractor that runs one particular application that your company is using. They may have an entirely different contractor um, on which, you know, has its own IT system on which you're, they're running a software that you're using in a different aspect of your organization. So it's this loss of control in a multidimensional way that you have to really watch out for. And, and that's why I, I like to tell clients that, you know, you should think of cloud computing as almost like entering into a contract with a general contractor for your house. 
the general contractor is not going to do all the work. They're going to hire demolition contractors. They're going to hire plumbing contractors, et cetera. You need to do enough due diligence on not only your cloud contractor, the person you're signing the party with, but find out who they've subcontracted the various aspects of that service to. Any particular types of due diligence that uh, companies should conduct to protect themselves and their clients or customers from unauthorized access to and disclosure of sensitive data? Well, um, I think you need to, number one, um, find out uh, you know, who they're in bed with, for lack of a better phrase. I mean, find out who their subcontractors are. And then once you find out who they are, find out where they are so you know where your data is being stored. Because depending upon the kind of data that you're processing, whether you're an international organization or perhaps just you know, a U.S.-based organization, you may or may not be comfortable that your data is being stored, processed, and, and resent from a subcontractor that is in a particular you know, different country. So you need to ask lo lots of questions. You need to then... Uh, as part of your due diligence effort, start formulating contractual terms that include the right types of safeguards over your processing and over your data now that you know, you know who exactly is doing the processing. It sounds like there are some specific legal and commercial issues that companies really need to consider when drawing up a, a contract with a cloud provider. There are. And the, the real challenge is, um, because in, in my former life, I was with a, a big international law firm, and I did quite a few large IT outsourcing engagements that, that were worldwide, but they were with large organizations like IBM and EDS. And in a managed service relationship, which what these contracts were, the contracts were long. Many of them were, you know, 150 pages or more. And they drilled down on, on you know, at, at a very detailed level on the scope of services that were being provided, how they could provide the services, where the data was being stored page and a half to two pages of terms on how the security of the data might be protected and should be protected. When, when you get into a cloud relationship, my experience has been that you, you get a contract from the cloud provider and it's two pages. And it has, you know, very nebulous terms in like, we'll, you know, we'll use commercially reasonable efforts to protect your data. You know, no details about what that really means, where the data is being stored, how it's being processed, what rights you have to the data during the contract, what happens when the contract is over, how will they transition you off. You know, the contracts tend to lack a, a lot of legal specifics, and when you're talking about sensitive data that can cost your company money, um, you need to be ready to ask some very difficult questions of your provider. And that really falls on the company's shoulders to uh, get behind that and, and really spearhead that. Yeah, it really does. And for publicly traded companies, um, it, it becomes a bigger issue because uh, of their obligations under Sarbanes-Oxley. Um, they have to understand what kind of controls they and their subcontractors, you know, a cloud provider is just another subcontractor, have over the company's data uh, because they need to be able to answer to the shareholders about what kind of controls are in place. And there are some specific laws that are applicable to, uh, to both customers and providers, right? Absolutely. And in the U.S., the data security laws are evolving very quickly. Um, there are now more than 20 states that have data security laws of some flavor, um, most of which now have provisions in called data breach notification statutes that require you to notify the public generally when there's been a disclosure of confidential information like credit card data or health information um, or financial information. And 
if you get outside of the U.S., you know, where you're, whether you're talking Canada or Europe, there are obviously privacy acts that govern how personal information can be disclosed outside that country. So you, you have to take all of those things into account. And then depending upon whether you're a financial services organization, you may be subject to the, the Gramm-Leach-Bliley Act. If you're a healthcare organization, you're going to be subject to HIPAA and the new HITECH Act. There are a lot of things you need to be aware of that you know you as a company are subject to and you need to make sure that your providers protect you from running afoul of those regulations. How do you monitor that relationship to make sure the provider is implementing the proper safeguards for the security and the privacy of a customer's uh, data? Well, one of the things I normally require in the contract are terms and conditions uh, you know of reporting uh, of where data is, whether there's been breaches, who's accessed it, you know, and, and depending upon the type of relationship that you're talking about, if you're talking about infrastructure as a service where you're actually, you know, talking about a, a data center that you're subscribing to in the cloud, monitoring of who has access to that data center, monitoring the types of controls that are in place. One of the things that publicly traded companies need to do with these types of contractors is what used to be called getting a SAS 70 type 2 audit report. It's now called SSA 16, but it's basically the same set of regulations. What companies that are in the IT business do is they will have an SSA 16 audit done by, you know, Price Waterhouse or one of the big audit firms. And that audit will uncover and and report on the, the physical and logical controls that are in place at a data center. And by getting one of these SSA 16 Type 2 reports, you can satisfy your obligations under Sarbanes-Oxley that you, in fact, are on top of the types of controls that you have on your own company's data. Should subscribers consider getting insurance to protect their data? And if so, what kind of policy should they have? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and, and the insurance has two components. I mean, you you as a company should have insurance, and you can get you can get policies around, you know, cyber theft, and policies that cover losses from a data security breach. And, and it's important to make sure that either you or your cloud provider or both of you have those kinds of policies in place and that they have the right riders and, and provisions in that protect you. Because as I mentioned before, once there's been a big data, a data breach, most of these states that have these data breach notification statutes, you're going to spend a lot of money putting notices in papers, running ads on television, telling people that you're sorry, but you're database has been breached there and as a result you know personal financial information may have been disclosed that's going to cost you a lot of money and then you're going to have you know money involved with changing account numbers with trying to recover that data and defending all of the lawsuits from the people who were damaged so you need to make sure that your insurance covers those kinds of losses and and one of the things our firm does is we have an insurance practice that will actually audit and review your insurance policies to make sure that you're covered if you, in fact, are envisioning this kind of a relationship. So that's, that's insurance on your end. That you have control over. I normally require cloud providers to maintain policies as well. It's a little more difficult because whereas in a managed service relationship that you're spending you know, tens of millions of dollars in, it's easy to go to a company like IBM or EDS and say you have to have this insurance and that insurance and this insurance. Many cloud providers will tell you that, you know, given the the amount of money they're charging you for their service, they have some very basic insurance, but they're not willing to go out and buy more. So you have to take that into account when trying to put together a risk profile for a cloud provider. If, If you can't 
get the provider to get the insurance, you better make sure you have it on your end. It's important that, that big companies, especially when they are contemplating entering into a cloud relationship, um, get their risk management department involved in the very early steps. So that risk management understands the kinds of risks that, that this company is potentially um, exposing it to. And if there is a major failure in the cloud computing platform or, or other such performance issue, how does one mitigate the effects of those issues? Um, it's important that companies that, that are going into a, a cloud relationship maintain their own data backup. Don't put all of your uh, your eggs in one basket. Don't put all of your data with just the provider and rely on them to not only maintain that data, but also to do the backup and disaster recovery. You need to have a contingent pla uh, plan in place that says, look, if our cloud provider is down, we've got the data, it's sitting on a server in Mauritius or you know somewhere safe, so that at a minimum, we can take that data and enter into a short-term contract with a new provider. But I would never recommend that a company turn over all of their data to a cloud provider and not maintain their own backup. How about a backup with another cloud provider? Well, that's, you know, again, it all falls on the risk continuum. That's certainly one option. I mean, I would, I would certainly want to be with a provider that was in a different geographic plane than my initial provider, so that if there was a force majeure event that caused them to be down, it wouldn't likely hit both of the providers at the same time. That's a good point. What can companies do to protect themselves in the event there is a dispute with a provider? There are really two things. One is very important that in your contract with the provider, you get a provision that says during the pendency of a dispute, the provider does not have any right to interrupt its services. Otherwise, you will always live with the threat of the provider saying, I don't know, you know we're going to raise our rates, and if you don't pay us, we're, we're going to stop serving you. You need to have that provision in your contract, and, and most providers will actually agree to, to put that in there, as long as the customer is willing to, for example, pay all undisputed amounts under a contract and, and sort of make them whole while the, while the dispute is going on. Secondly, I, I think on the dispute resolution front, you should try to get terms in your contract that require a, a very quick resolution of disputes, a provision that perhaps says, you know, the executives of the company will meet for five days, and if they can't resolve the dispute, you know, one of the other parties entitled to go to court. Don't get sucked into provisions that require very long-winded disputes between, you know, three levels of company executives and then non-binding mediation and then arbitration that takes six months. That won't help you when, when your system is down. Is there anybody out there looking at these providers? I mean, are there any, any organizations that will certify the quality of cloud providers? Yeah, there, there's actually quite a few. I mean, there are there are um, IBM has its own certification program. Um, I, I mean, if you go out and Google, you will find probably ten companies that do certification. I mean, there's a company called CompTIA that's actually based in the Chicago area where I am that does certification of cloud computing providers. And and if you are a cloud computing provider, and, and I have several clients that are the providers, I normally recommend them to try to achieve that kind of certification because like any other certification, it's a, it's a nice feather in your hat when you're trying to interview with new customers. Because if, if nothing else, it means that, you know, a third party has actually looked at them and looked at how they provide service and how they maintain the security of their data and said, yeah, this, they look like they're using reasonable means to do this. You think that as time goes on, we're going to see new issues arise out of cloud computing, new cloud computing issues that, that, that nobody to this point has, has really thought about as, as being an issue? 
I think there are, I don't know about new issues, because I think a lot of the, you know, really a lot of the issues that you see with cloud computing are the same issues that we saw when, when you know, in the 90s we were doing tons of IT outsourcing work. I think, you know, what's happened with cloud computing is it has made many of these issues much more multidimensional because there are now more parties involved. And parties involved in multiple countries. So yep, good point. You have issues, um, you know, much more cross-border, if you will, international issues raised by data being passed back and forth across the oceans and back and forth between different companies. What we've done is we've complicated the situation. I mean, one of the interesting things that's come up as just an international issue, issue is companies in Europe being very reluctant to enter into cloud computing relationships with American-based cloud providers because of a concern that they have that the data of their um, of their individuals in Europe will be shipped over to the U.S. and the minute that they get shipped, it gets shipped over to the U.S. Number one, you know, it, it raises issues of the European Data Privacy Act. But number two, once it gets to the U.S., the U.S. can look at it under the Patriot Act. Oh, that's right. And there are a lot of companies that don't want their data looked at by the U.S. We could probably do a, a whole other podcast just on the international aspect uh, of this. There are, you know, there are a lot of issues that you know we've only sort of touched on the surface, depending yeah. upon the type of service you're looking for or the type of data that's being processed. There are hundreds of sub-issues. Then let's definitely do this again, Mr. Kunick. It's uh, really been a pleasure to have you with us today, and I look forward to future podcasts on cloud computing and some of the many issues that uh, are arising from all of this. Thank you very much for your time today. You're very welcome. James Kunick of Much Shellist in Chicago. Thank you for listening to this LexisNexis Legal Podcast. Visit the LexisNexis communities at LexisNexis.com slash community. Like the communities on Facebook. Follow them on Twitter. The LexisNexis Emerging Issues Law Community Podcast, copyright 2011 by LexisNexis, a division of Reed Elsevier Incorporated. I'm Steve Bursler. Thank you for listening.